Hey, y'all, and welcome to Least of These. I'm your host, Leah D, and I'm off for the next two weeks. But as promised, I have an amazing podcaster here filling in, the one and only Kim Toller from A Million Other Choices. I got to know Kim after covering her niece Taylor Toller's case. She knows all too well the reality of violent crime and has a passion for sharing the stories of others with a deep respect for the victim and their families. And besides that, she's an all-around incredible human. I just love her and her podcast, and I think you will too. You can find A Million Other Choices on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now, and I'll be sure to drop a link in the show notes. So without further ado, let's join Kim as she tells us the story of Donna Jones in Ottawa, Canada. Dr. Christopher Milroy walked the jury through the history of Donna Jones' injuries violently etched on her body. Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. I have another tough case to hear today. This one is from Ottawa and yet another intimate partner homicide. And I know that some of you might be sick of me doing these stories, but they are just so important to me for, I think, kind of obvious reasons. And I think that I understand them the least because I just don't understand how you can treat people in your inner intimate circle like an enemy and brutalize them, all while going about your regular life, building this illusion that you are just a regular person. But with this one, I'm going to take you into a little bit deeper dive into the psyche of the person being abused and try to answer the why don't they just leave mythical question. This is the suffering and murder of Donna Jones. Donna Jones was born on Christmas Day in 1975 to her mom, Irina, in Ottawa. I couldn't find any details about her father, but several reports say that her dad was kind of all about defined gender roles and brought Donna up, treating her a little bit less than for being a woman, often belittling her and making her feel insecure about her weight, which, side note, was never much above average for her height, and just some other things about herself that she really shouldn't have had to worry about. She also had a brother named Derek and an older sister named Jennifer, but not someone that you could keep down. She has been described by friends as bubbly. She was positive and a super hard worker. She became the first in her family to go to university, studying both at Algonquin College and Carleton University. I read in one report that for a time she was working three jobs to get her student loans paid off as fast as she could. She finally settled into a job with the federal government, working in human resources, and was a rising star in the corporate world. She even managed to buy herself a house on Barwell Avenue, and as most of us in any larger Canadian city knows, in today's world, that's quite a bit of a feat. So really good for her. Things are kind of going her way. She has a large group of close friends. And then in the summer of 2005, she was looking for love, although still struggling with some inner insecurity issues. Her friend Melanie Houle who sadly carries a lot of guilt about it to this day, introduced her to Mark Hutt when she invited him to join their baseball team. Mark had kind of entered Melanie's circle, and I'm not sure what impression he gave her off the hop, but the type of person that I can tell that Melanie is 
she had no idea how things were going to go down for Donna with Mark. These monsters can be very charming, and they put on a great first impression and wind a lovely tale. So I hope that Melanie can one day find that piece that I think she deserves. As Detective Michael Hudson, who investigated Donna's case, said, everyone did everything they possibly could do. There's only one villain here. And I probably don't have to know from court documents that the relationship amped up very quickly. If I had to guess, I think that they were probably living together within a year of meeting. Donna's story has some pretty classic undertones, and that is generally how these guys work, sinking their nails into a good woman and claiming their territory. And very soon, family and friends started to notice that Donna just wasn't as available with her time as much anymore, which was unusual for her. She had a big circle of friends, and she really liked to be social. But now she was spending so much of her time with Mark that she didn't really have time to spare for coffees and other get-togethers. Friends were also concerned about how Mark often talked to and treated Donna. Of a lot of concern was Donna's weight, which by the fall of 2006 had plummeted from 162 to 101 pounds. Melanie recalled later in court testimony being in a car with Donna when she got a call from Mark and she says that she could hear him yelling at her, say you're a bitch, say you're a fucking bitch, to which she finally relented and did. Now, friends knew that Mark called her very often when she was out with friends checking up on her. They also started to notice bruises and marks on her, which both he and she always kind of dismissed with a story about her own clumsiness. Melanie saw Donna leave group outings to run and get Mark orange juice or to make him dinner, bruises shaped like handprints on her wrists, which were always excused away with rough sex. Another good friend, Crystal, overheard fights where Mark would yell, where are you and what are you doing? You better fucking be home tonight. If you're not here, I'll kill you, your family and myself. Donna often confided to her friends that Mark needed her support. He'd had a bad childhood, no friends of his own, and she was his whole world and he needed her. He also often threatened suicide if he, she did ever leave, further chaining Donna to him. It's not as bad as you think became her mantra to alleviate her friend's concerns. Slowly, Donna's makeup application got heavier to cover bruises. She wore turtlenecks in the very heat of the summer. And these cooking mishaps and spills and clumsiness continued. So concerned for Donna's well-being and with amazingly great intentions, her brother Derek, Jennifer, and Melanie, along with some other friends, organized an, an intervention. This is so great, and I really applaud them for what they were trying to do. I'm not surprised it didn't work. During the intervention, they told Donna that they were going to be unable to participate in her wedding because, of course, by this time, Donna and Mark were engaged. The wedding went ahead despite the intervention, and she just got new bridesmaids. So I, I think it's easy to ask why she didn't listen. This is such a complicated issue with people in abusive relationships. I went ahead with my own wedding knowing my friends and family didn't support the union. I even doubted the relationship myself, but to back out, like, no way. It's going to be fine. She can fix it. She's, I think she's feeling a lot of shame. There is way more going on underneath the denial of what is actually happening to her. So Donna's performance at work continued to suffer, and Mark, who was a sometimes roofer, spent Donna's hard-earned money on expensive toys, like a new truck, ATVs, a snowmobile, racking up her credit card debt to the point where she was on the brink of bankruptcy. And she kept her secret on how bad things were getting for her. And she became almost more concerned with protecting Mark from the allegations of abuse than protecting herself. 
This is also something seen quite often in abusive relationships. Donna wanted the abuse to end, not the relationship. She loved Mark. She was very devoted to him and being insecure a bit to start. And then having someone repeatedly tell you your failings, or at least your failings based on another's perceptions, you think it's up to you to fix things. Like if you could just be a better person and act better, the abuse is going to stop for good. One of Mark's techniques to have this control was this Jekyll and Hyde notes that he would leave around the house. Police later found piles of these notes, some saying you're my angel and others telling her what a bitch she was. So he continued to let her friends think she was clumsy and forever walking into doors and letting cupboards close on her fingers and whatnot. Her friends didn't buy it. But Donna was headstrong and secretive, never really revealing anything negative about Mark. Where he was her abuser, she was his protector. Donna's brother Derek testified at trial that she also refused to have him sign a prenup and always couldn't help noticing that these expensive gifts, like a new pool table that she indulged him with, he also couldn't help noticing holes in the walls of her home that looked like they had been punched. After they got married, Donna's attendance at family functions slowed almost to nothing. Derek told the court, quote, Donna wasn't her happy-go-lucky self. She became cold, suspicious, fearful. She wasn't herself. She was a drone. She continued making excuses to De for Derek as well. She once had a broken wrist that required surgery, which she explained as having slipped on some rocks. So exactly how bad were things getting for Donna? Well, by the end of November 2009, Donna had a limp, a split lip that seemed to never heal, and burns on her arms that looked very nasty, which were always explained as a pasta cooking accident. She called into work sick the first week of December due to a cold. She called her mom to tell her that she had Mark there who was going to take care of her and not to worry. At 9.15 on the morning of December 6, 2009, Mark called 911 saying he had just woken up and found his wife not breathing and he thought she might be dead. What is your emergency? Oh, my wife's not breathing! My wife, I just woke up, my wife's dead! He told the dispatcher that 11 days, 11 full days before Donna had been drunk and on some kind of conference call in the backyard and had fallen into the fire pit and gotten burnt. She had refused to go to the hospital for treatment and he had been begging her. Paramedic Logan Martin was the first one on the scene and found Donna on a makeshift bed made of couch cushions in her home's basement. Her face was so swollen he wasn't able to pry open her eyes to check her pupils. When he lifted her shirt to check on the burns, her shirt stuck to the wounds due to a pussing infection. Detective Tara Anderson followed close behind paramedics and when she entered the house, one of the first things that struck her was the smell not just a decomposing smell, but one mixed with septic infection. What she saw continues to haunt her. She described Donna as looking, quote, like she had been dragged behind a car on a gravel road, end quote. Tara saw terrible burns on Donna's stomach, arms, and along the sides of her torso. She also had two black eyes, numerous scrapes and bruises, and like holes, like actual holes in her legs. She testified that she'd never seen anything like it in her life. Meanwhile, Tara testified Mark was agitated and hysterical, running around giving a whole lot of details about how he had been begging her to go to the hospital, but she had refused. He had pawned things to pay for bandages for her and tried to treat her himself. 
He told Tara that while he was carrying her to the bathroom the night before she fell and a large chunk of her hair fell out and also she hit her head on the bedpost and on the bathroom wall when trying to explain away her other injuries. Tara noted blood speckled and streaked along the walls and floors. A bathroom door was propped open by two pellet guns. Stacked in the room were boxes haphazardly packed with some of Mark's clothing, which he said was a threat to move out if she didn't go to the hospital. Sergeant Stephen Jones, who's a forensic officer, arrived and he also noticed red stains of blood on the walls and the hallway floor and on the stair posts. One of the interior doors were broken. He testified about the odor hanging in the air. Quote, there was some decomposing odor. It was acrid, sickly smell, nothing like I've smelled before. Handcuffs and a bow and arrow and sword were also found, a typical arsenal of domestic abusers. Donna was sadly declared deceased. Mark didn't shed a tear, and when told that news, he only said incredulously that he'd been trying to get her to go to the hospital. Mark was brought in for questioning and quickly dropped the fire pit story. And here, let's let him tell his version of the story. My wife has never spoken to me the way she spoke to me two weeks ago. She basically told me that she was going to go with somebody else, that I wasn't, I wasn't going to be a father, that, because I do, I, I do, you know what I mean, I'm not, I'm not perfect, I'm not a perfect person, I get stressed out just like everybody else, and it all started one day, I was making spaghetti in the kitchen, and I wanted to make enough for two weeks because my wife loves spaghetti. She loved my spaghetti. She loved it to death. So I was making a pot. I was boiling water for the noodles. And she came up behind me and she just said, she said something about just like, this isn't, this isn't working. This isn't happening. I'm going to, I'm going to cheat on you basically. Like I'm, I'm, you know what I mean? If things don't work out, I'm going, you know, and she kept just saying it and, and putting it in my head and putting it in my head and putting it in my head. Bills in her house have been stacked up higher than you can imagine. I've been going through things with my father, everything like that. And when she said that to me, the water was boiling and she was behind me, and I thought she had left the room. Instead of leaving the room, she was behind me, she was crouched down, and she was getting Tupperware out of the, the thing to, to bring for work. And I don't know why, I don't know what I did, but the next thing I knew, I just, I hit that thing, and I, I, I wanted to just, you know what I mean? I was so frustrated. I just wanted to, to, to you know, get my frustrations out. Okay. And when I hit that pot, she was behind me, and it just drenched her. And after that, I looked at her and I said, "Sweetheart, we need to go to a hospital." And she said, "I don't want to go. I don't want to go to a hospital." She was afraid for me to get in trouble, and I said, I don't care. Just go to a hospital, please. We can deal with this together. It's an accident. We can get through it. She didn't want to go. I begged. I pleaded with her. She made up a story to her parents saying she was going to Cornwall. 
for work. She told, and she actually did have a cold. She called her work and said she had a cold, that she was staying home, and she wanted to heal at home. And I told her, I said, that's not, that's, we can't do this. We have to get to a hospital. That went on for about a week of me changing bandages, staying up all night making sure she's okay. But there were a few inconsistencies in Mark's story of the accidental burn and her stubbornness about getting treatment. For starters, according to Sergeant Michael Hudson, Mr. Hutt was making the sounds of crying, but at the time I was noticing that there were no tears. At times, Mark was left on his own in the interview room while cameras rolled. He wailed in melodramatic fashion, I'm so sorry, sweetheart, but I have to tell the truth. I can't lie. Why wouldn't you just go to the hospital? Why, why, why? Why wouldn't you just go? I should have brought her anyway, sweetheart, why? Why wouldn't you let me bring you to the hospital? Why wouldn't you let me bring you there? Why, why? Did you have to fight me over it? Why, sweetheart? Why, 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 why? He would then appear to vomit into a wastebasket, which was checked later to find only a little bit of spittle. Mark's cell phone records revealed that he had called Donna many, 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 many times while she was at work. The call stopped on November 25th, which was estimated to be the night that Donna suffered her burns and called into work sick the next day. After the burns, while Donna would have been in what was described by the medical examiner as exquisite pain, he made calls to a paintball store, his parents, and of course, his ex-girlfriend. Mark told investigators that the reason she was so stubborn about seeking medical care was because when she needed to surgery on her wrist for that slipping on rocks incident, she had had a bad experience and vowed never to go to the hospital again. So he very helpfully stayed up all night like a martyr, watching her to make sure she was okay and brought all kinds of burn creams. He also said she hadn't eaten in about five days. Now, they did find a receipt for cold medication along with some alphagettis and cookies, but no burn cream was found. There were bandages on her fingers and her left forearm, but the majority of her burns, which covered a huge portion of her body, were left unbandaged. He also told them that Dono had wet herself on several occasions after suffering the burns and Mark so very selfishly and caringly cleaned her up. But this was found to be unlikely as the burns were so severe that her kidneys and bowels would have shut down after a day or two, and he also had admitted that she hadn't eaten in five days. When asked if he had gotten any burns from the water, he said, nothing, not a darn thing, I wear hoodies a lot. Which is pretty incredible seeing that from his description, this pot of boiling water completely passed by him and doused Donna behind him. He told Detective Hudson he guessed his hoodie had gotten wet maybe, but I really didn't pay attention to myself. Mark said that Donna was very clumsy, but he was also accident prone, admitting that one time he had unintentionally elbowed her in the nose in his sleep. And of course, there was the time that he didn't realize that she was outside in the backyard when he shot her with a pellet gun in the knee. Mark says that when he discovered her that morning not breathing, he tried to do CPR on her and that only the night before she had been laughing and talking and only three hours before she stopped breathing, she had been discussing Christmas gifts. But forensic science would deem this to be impossible, which brings us to the autopsy report, which was completed by Dr. Christopher Milroy. Donna's body had seven calloused rib fractures, likely caused by kicks. Two of them looked fairly recent. A broken left finger, 
fractured right wrist, and an injury on her forearm that appeared to be from a blow across the arm, often referred to as a nightstick fracture. Her nose was broken. She had two black eyes and cuts and bruises and scrapes covering most of her body, particularly on her head, knees, and legs, which were after suffering the burns, which I haven't even gotten to that part yet. There were also 29 air gun pellets embedded about a centimeter into her body. Dr. Milroy testified that the pellets had been there for some time and had started to show signs of lead poisoning. At least two of the pellets were fired into her after she suffered her terrible burns. The gun would have had to have been fired from very close range in order to pierce the skin and embed themselves. As horrific as all of that was, her cause of death was septic shock resulting from her burn wounds, which covered 40% of her body. Dr. Milroy testified that if she had been treated, she had virtually a 100% chance of survival. And during treatment, she would have been put into a medically induced coma to keep her from her horrendous, torturous pain that she was in. Mark was charged with first-degree murder as Donna had been unlawfully confined by her husband due to the trauma bond that he had created with her. He had the nerve to plead not guilty and drag the family through a month-long trial with crime scene photos and autopsy reports. Defense lawyer Lauren Goldstein argued that Mark was only guilty of criminal negligence causing death because he didn't want Donna, his defender, protector, and source of cash and emotional support, to die and figured she had recovered from burns before, like no biggie. The jury did not have to deliberate for long before convicting him. The courtroom full of Donna's supporters erupted into applause and someone shouted, Hey the piper now, you prick. We like that guy. Jennifer Jones, Donna's sister, said in her victim impact statement, I picture her afraid with Mark pointing the gun at her and Donna trying to avoid the painful shower of boiling water. These thoughts will always be with me. The only comfort I now take is that she is in heaven and no longer suffering. Melanie Houle, her friend, said, Had I not introduced the two of them, it is likely that Donna would still be alive. She would be laughing with friends, celebrating milestones, planning her next adventure. I would have watched her walk down the aisle on her wedding day to meet a nervous and excited man, but ready to build a life with her. Instead, I allowed a monster into our shared circle of friends and walked her down the aisle in a coffin. The Donna I knew, love and miss every day, died the day I introduced them. When asked if he had anything to say for himself, Mark stood and said, I am disgusted and appalled at my actions. Since incarceration, I am not the monster I once was. I know many of you won't forgive me, but forgiveness sets the soul free. Which was responded to by a wave of disgusted snorts and sighs. Donna's brother Derek left the courtroom pumping his fists and shouting, An evil man was put to jail for evil crimes to my sister, and he will pay for the rest of his life. He then said to reporters, I don't forgive him. I don't think about him. It takes away my personal growth. I deal with lo the loss of my sister and I support my family. I have no time for someone like that in my life. Adrian DeTitro, who was Donna's former boss, said, quote, His last words were for us to forgive him. Never. We may come to terms with this, but there will never be forgiveness from me. His reign of terror didn't just affect Donna. It affected all of us. And people need to know that there are people out there like this in the world. It's best said that there are monsters in our own backyards. 
Sergeant Michael Hudson said that this was the toughest case that he had ever had to investigate. Quote, it's an incredible, horrible thing to look at. To be quite honest, I'm glad it's done. Glad it's done. One of the expert witnesses that testified was Deborah Sinclair, and she testified that after four years of abuse, Donna had become a vacant drone and described the prison guard is in your head in something called a trauma bond. She testified that sometimes the only thing that does the trick that can break that bond is is a physical rescue, literally dragging the woman out of the danger away from the man or the cult to some safe place. According to Medical News Today, trauma bonding is the connection a person forms to a person who causes physical, emotional, and or sexual harm in a relationship. These types of relationships usually develop subtly and slowly over time. This bond creates a toxic and highly dangerous situation that continues to get worse and becomes more and more difficult to break. When someone's main source of support is also their abuser, a trauma bond can develop. An abused person may turn to the abusive person for comfort when they are hurt, even if the other person was the one who caused it. For example, a child relies on their parent or caregiver for love and support. If that caregiver is abusive, the child may come to associate love with abuse, believing that this association is normal. The child may be unable to see the abusive caregiver as bad. The child may instead blame themselves for the abuse as a way of making sense of what is happening to them. This allows the caregiver to continue being good in the child's eyes, which reinforces their bonds. So this gives the abused person hope that the suffering will end and that they will one day receive the love or the connection that the perpetrator has promised. The person experiencing the abuse, the abuse may see suffering as a, as a price to pay for kindness. Remorseful behavior may also cause the abused person to feel grateful, particularly if they have become accustomed to poor treatment. And then this reinforces the bond. So hopefully that answers the question of why they don't just leave if you had that question. And that was the reprehensible murder of Donna Jones. And Mark, if you are listening to this, I hate you. You are a disgusting human being and probably one of the worst things that God ever blew the breath of life into. And I wish you a slow and painful death. I will be back again next week with another case. As always... Thank you so much for listening. 